Welcome to episode 352 of Troubadours and Rockon Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's program, we feature a conversation with New York City-based pianist and composer Jed Disler. Mr. Disler and I talk about his journey to New York City, being vulgar, time and how it passes, Beethoven, Thelonious Monk, the parallels between the two. We talk a bit about Duke Ellington, Gershwin, and Billy Strayhorn, Aaron Copeland, Cornelia Cafe, Healing Through Monk, The Future of Jazz, among other things. We have an EWSA titled The Underground, two jazz poems as read by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise, written by Hayden Carruth and Sonia Sanchez, and another poem written by yours truly, titled Trends. All of this, as is always the case, is imbued, infused, with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It is so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 352 of Troubadours and Tours.
The Underground. I've got the full moon fever. There's a blue van outside my door. Are they coming to take me away? Ha ha. Yes, they are coming to take you away. Hee hee. I think I am cracking up. Too much weed, too much TV, too much focus on mine, on me. I have been reading the Tao Te Ching. I have been trying to get myself into Tai Chi. Though my fears on this uber-driven dystopian sphere are fed with overcooked wing bites and late-night pints of beer. It keeps me tossing and turning with bed sweats and death threats ringing in these ears. How has love succumbed to hate, Radio Rahim? How has the Joker become a hero, and how has intimate love between two people become so difficult to cultivate that instead we choose to masturbate, alone at home with lotions and probes and remote controls streaming to satisfy and replace that thing, that thing, that thing? I already mentioned the distinct likelihood that I am cracking up. Dostoevsky's notes from the underground abound as indicators and guideposts to my existence. Jack Frost supplants Robert Frost as the substance of my soul this cold gray winter. The blue van is still parked outside next to the gray tin garbage cans under a magenta-hued sky. What are they waiting for? When will they bust through these doors? And I sense myself becoming a foolish hero to a fictitious world of voices and eyes, drones in the sky and clones on the ground. The only sound still clear and true is coming from you playing a piano.
Hello. Hello, Jed Disler. Is that you? It is me. Guilty as charged. <laughs> Guilty as charged. It's so nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. And uh, I have to tell you, I I really love how you bring all these worlds together, literature and music and essays and poetry, and how you just build all of these artistic and philosophical bridges. And I think it's so important to build bridges because we don't need to build walls, as you know. I, I'm taken aback by the kind words coming from you, sir. You made my day. Thank you. And uh, be- before we do get started, uh, I'd like to share with the listeners a little background information, if you don't mind. Sure. Jed Disler is a world-renowned pianist and composer called, quote, an altogether extraordinary pianist by Michael Redmond in the Newark Star-Ledger. The downtown keyboard magus in the New Yorker <laughs> magazine and a witty, genial, and adventurous pianist and composer, says the New York Times. He is the highly regarded organization called Composers Collaborative's co-founder and artistic director. Some of Mr. Distler's recent projects include recitals devoted to jazz composer, pianist, giant, Thelonious Monk's complete songs, and a new record-breaking piece composed for 180 keyboard instruments. Mr. Distler taught for more than 20 years at Sarah Lawrence College and has received grants and awards from ASCAP, Meet the Composer, and American Composers Forum, plus a coveted McDowell Colony residency. Troubadours and Rock on Tours is happy to have on the program Jed Distler. Pretty impressive, sir. Troubadour and Rock on Tour, first certain. Wow. Uh, the, the other thing you should mention is I'm also a radio host. I don't have a podcast, but I have a weekly radio show called Between the Keys, which is all about a very broad range of keyboard music, and that won an ASCAP award a couple of years ago, and uh, it's quite... And I, I produce it right out of my home and send the files to WWFM, which is a classical radio station based in New Jersey. And they are a fantastic station and they give me incredible freedom. Of course, since it's over public radio, I can't curse, you yeah. know, the way one can on podcasts. But, well, uh, yeah, but, you know, and I want to. Say something before you curse. <laughs> we we we're also a radio show. Actually, we we have we um offered up as a podcast after broadcasts on um Radio Free Brooklyn and uh, it also right. WFTE right. and it's on the Pacifica Network. So we can't cuss either. Okay, I I will behave myself. <laughs> I I will rest. I will restrain myself. I won't. I won't get into what I get into with Gilbert Gottfried, of course, you know. <laughs> no, no. Well, you, you know, you don't seem like a vulgar guy to me anyway, so I don't think we're... Um, he don't know me very well. No, I no. do not. <laughs> now, are, are you a native of New York? Are you, a, or did you migrate there? Um, I guess I migrated. I'm an immigrant, I suppose. I immigrated from New Jersey. I grew up in New Jersey, but uh, I was very close to New York. And when I was a kid, I came into New York constantly for concerts and shows and what have you. And I, I went to the Juilliard pre-college. So 
I was exposed to New York at a very early age. Even when I was 11 year old, I was going to the Fillmore East, believe it or not. But uh, so I consider myself, uh, I was a New Yorker wannabe from from the womb, so to speak. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> yes, that's right. Yeah. And uh, then you, so you migrated when you were uh, a lad for for school or after school? Yes, yeah. I went to, uh, well, I was coming into New York to take classes at Juilliard pre-college. And then I went to university in the New York area. So I had access to New York. And as soon as I graduated from school, then I moved to the city and I've been living in New York in one form or another since 1978. I'm, I'm, I'm a veteran, I guess. Yeah. Oh yeah. Are you in Manhattan? I am in Manhattan. Yes, indeed. On the Upper West Side. I've been the same apartment I've lived in since 1980, in fact. Excellent. Excellent. That's 40 years. Jeez. Yeah. The time goes by fast. It surely it does. does. I think as you get older, time goes by quicker and quicker. I always wondered why that was. There was an article in the New York Times about how one perceives time differently as one ages. And the, and there's a scientific explanation for that. I don't remember what it is, but it's something that I'd like to research because I'm, I'm really fascinated by that. And I think the idea of managing time is something that all artists, whether you're a musician or poet or visual artist or filmmaker, this is something that we are constantly dealing with and learning how to do and solve i think you're right you know it's in you know the the stereotypical uh way that artists often are looked at and i don't think it's fair more so musicians i think than any other type of artist is that they don't abide by the normal uh you know constraints or requirements regarding time i think it depends on what the work is if what one is working on, if you're writing a piece of music that's very short or if you're working on something that's large of scale, I think uh, one has to think about uh, how do you approach this? If I'm composing, let's say, a very, very large piece, obviously I'm not going to write it in one continuous gulp. Otherwise, you know, I don't sleep for five months and that doesn't work <laughs> so i think you have to think about that in terms of scheduling and blocks of time and incrementally whereas if i'm just writing a 10 second piano piece then that i can do i can do it right now as we're speaking in fact in fact i just did no just beautiful easy. impressive send it to me Right. <laughs> no, but you know, but you know, you know what I mean. I think this is this is something that has always fascinated me. Oh, me as well. You know, I I studied uh, engineering, um, and you know, got into some physics, and I, it just blew me away as a young man. Uh, how how wide open it is, and all the all the we we construct all these these uh, nuances that we live within just to make sense of, of our journey, I suppose, if that makes any sense. But when, yeah. when you really look at it, it's, yeah, it's, it's, we hardly understand. Yeah. I, uh, about a month or so ago, I 
did a two-hour radio special about Beethoven because this year is the 250th anniversary of his birth. Mm. And and we were talking about how Beethoven really is the great master of form and content, how he was just such an incredible architect, yet the substance of what he wanted to say combined with the really, really rigorous but not inflexible nor rigid sense of form, I think, is what gives the music so much power and shape and cogency. And we're talking about Thelonious Monk, and this is something that's always been fascinating for me, because Monk was a composer and improviser who thought very carefully about the structure of the songs and how every phrase fit against the other and how it had to be just and true and how he would, I don't know this for a fact, but I remember reading somewhere that he would play one of his songs over and over again constantly just to see if it had staying power or to see if it would be a hit. But but the, the, you know, the, would the song be subject to this constant scrutiny and uh, that that impressed me quite a lot it, you know you bring up Thelonious uh, Monk he is one of my favorites I'm not a jazz aficionado I have you know a little bit of involvement with the jazz scene in, in uh, northeastern Pennsylvania via a jazz festival we've been putting out for years oh I know yeah uh, and uh, but I, I Thelonious is is one of my favorites. And I, I look I watched a Straight with No Chaser. I don't know if you ever. I'm sure you've seen that. Straight, you're right. The uh, Charlotte does uh, documentary. Yeah, exactly. And and I found from watching that uh, that it seems he did not like to overproduce things in the studio. One or two takes, and that was that. You know, it depends. I think it depends on the producer he was working with. I think uh, it's it makes sense on one level, but I think the truth is with certain recordings, he could actually be quite a demanding taskmaster. And in fact, with the Riverside recordings, the recordings he made for the Riverside label, there are outtakes and alternate takes and false starts where you hear Monk being really quite demanding and specific and he knew exactly what he wanted so 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 there are more takes than uh than uh meet the eye i think let me ask you uh i mean you kind of opened this door for me maybe intentionally uh of course i did (laughs) yeah of course we 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 know how to pivot (laughs) right right now, how how do you compare, contrast, uh, put in the same room, so to speak, Beethoven and Thelonious Monk? How do I put them in the same room? Well, I uh, I excavate their corpses, and <laughs> no, <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously, seriously. I mean, you know, they're these are very, very different kinds of composers with different backgrounds. Although I've I've never thought of paralleling their careers and their trajectory but there are some interesting similarities because i think that they both kind of grew up in a village in a sense that they had a very strong musical environment that they grew up in with a lot of support wonderful teachers who recognized their talent and 
they both were interested in a lot of different kinds of music. They were both, uh, I think they both put a lot of value in architecture and structure. Although, you know, you, you know, you can't really, you know, the, 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 this is, they're very different subjects, but, but Monk, for instance, I think he was a very exacting band leader. I think he knew, he really knew what he wanted. He wanted, he wanted to, oh, excuse me, I'm not being very articulate, but he knew exactly how he wanted his songs to sound, not just in terms of arrangements, but in terms of how the musicians would play the notes, the sense of attack and release, how long do you hold the notes, dynamics, uh, staccato, legato, all this kind of stuff. Actually, we go back to Beethoven. Beethoven was incredibly specific with notation, with phrasing, with uh, markings, with dynamics. Tempos is a, kind of an interesting thing, you know, because the metronome uh, came into play with uh, Beethoven. And Monk uh, put a lot of store in tempos. He he really was very specific about like what are, what's the right tempo for this and uh, if you read the biography of monk that uh, robin kelly wrote it's an extraordinary book it's one of the best researched biographies i've ever read and there's a lot of documentation with monk in rehearsal and and uh, and how he worked with musicians and not just with monk himself but with reports from other musicians and uh, it's it's really fascinating when you um look at the work uh, of monk and other jazz uh, composers oftentimes we we embrace those folks here in the united states and say they are our beethovens our mozart mozarts and and the like do you think that's a fair sort of comparison or or not you know, it really depends because I think that uh, jazz composition and composition and classical composition, you know, through composed pieces, I think these are different aesthetics with different, you know, where where the compositional needs and performing needs are very different, you know. But uh, I, I would certainly put Ellington, you know, up among you know the great American. Composers, I think it's an extraordinary body of work. I think I would put Gershwin up there, but I would also put you know someone like Elliot Carter, who is one of my great great heroes in life. He lived till almost 104 years old, and he was composing up until 103, and his style evolved and evolved and evolved over 70 and 80 you know, almost 90 years. And he kept developing and he found a voice, he found an identity and he kept refining it and evolving with that and uh, studying most of his music the way I have. It's, it's, I think that's, that's really one of the incredible composing careers and, uh, you know, you know, one of, one of the, great American musicians. But then also you look at Ellington's evolution, you know, from the 1920s, you know, where he was 
just developing his style and he was playing at the Kentucky club and the cotton club and, and playing for shows and learning about theater and presentation and pacing and, and then how that evolves into his 1930s band. And then finally in the early 19, late thirties, early forties, how everything just really comes together. The the band with, uh, Ben Webster, the tenor saxophonist, and Jimmy Blanton, the revolutionary bass player. And then Ellington in the 60s evolves even further with the larger pieces, you know, the sacred concerts and the suites. And and even after his collaborator Billy Strayhorn dies, Ellington is still writing really powerful and fascinating music. So, you know, all of these careers are so interesting. Oh, no doubt. Talking with Jed Distler, New York City-based pianist, composer, and radio show host, a professor, too, among other things. Uh, I want to ask you about, we're talking jazz, we're talking classical. I mean, we have some classical composers in this country as well. You know, we we really didn't get into to that too much. But when you look at the jazz, the all music, but your expertise more so is in jazz and classical. How, how do you think the U.S. culture informs the, the compositions that come out of our, our, uh, our country? I think certainly the eclecticism is very decisive. I think that uh, certainly I think among, among American composers, there has always been a very eclectic streak from even from the late 1800s where American composers basically were writing uh, European knockoffs. But once composers were starting to embrace elements of music that were quintessentially American, you know, certainly, you know, from the African-American tradition, uh, uh, Native American tradition, and uh, and jazz as it was involving and ragtime there it it just it just added more options for for vocabulary i think that there i think that definitely you know what if one had to say what characterizes american concert music i would definitely say the eclecticism and the openness to so many ideas you know it, of course, and like in uh, the natural world, when you're talking about ecosystems, the more diversity an ecosystem has, the stronger it is. Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I'm not saying every composer embraces that necessarily. There are certain composers who, but someone, someone like Aaron Copland, I think, had very acerbic modernist music at the very beginning of his career and then he became more tonal and populist I think in the 1930s and then these elements kind of synthesized more in the 50s and 60s toward the end of his composing life so you know, every case is very different one can't really pigeonhole these things but we're talking about Monk and Monk more or less found his own style fairly early and never really diverted from it. I would say that from certainly from the late 1940s when he was starting to record, I think the characteristics of his music making, the uh, unexpected accents and the 
kind of the rhythmic shifts and the syncopation and the very quirky harmonic voicings, the unexpected intervals he used. These, all of these elements pretty much were in play by the late 40s. And he kind of stuck with that for the rest of his life. And I've always been fascinated by his music, but I've also been fascinated how many musicians have used Monk as a jumping off point for them to take off on their own and do their own takes on Monk. And that's pretty much what I've done in my new solo CD, Fearless Monk, where I I like to call it reimagining, where I, I and, and I did, I, I mean, we could talk about this in a bit, but basically I take a lot of Monk songs and I completely destroy them. I have no mercy. I completely redo them in my own image. And he definitely would not be happy with what I did, but why, why did you do it? I did it because I, it's kind of interesting. The reason I did this was back in 2011, my first wife passed away and we formed composers collaborative together and we had a working relationship as well as a marriage. And I basically had to start reinventing myself and to find a way to come back into establishing myself again in the music community because I had kind of retreated from performing and from my musical activity to nurse her and her final illness. And one thing that I wanted to do is I, when I was a kid, I played a lot of jazz and I stopped in my early 20s, because I was getting more and more into playing classical music and into composing for concert situations. So I was getting into the so-called new music racket. And I I always loved jazz. I mean, I mean, I mean, I consider it a first language that I stopped speaking for a long time. But I would sometimes I go and hear music or I would play jazz in in an informal situation and I always got a big kick from it but in 2011 when I was now newly on my own I thought I what am I going to do I I think I need a big project to just kind of bring bring myself back and I thought I want to get back into improvising again I want to see how it feels now I wasn't sure how it would manifest itself career-wise, but I, I just felt creatively and pianistically. I kind of wanted to regress. I mean, I was starting, I, I kind of wanted to revisit my adolescence. I mean, I started growing my hair again and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, and then quite unexpectedly and delightfully, I actually remarried uh, very quickly after. But, uh, but I started playing in jazz situations where you could sit in after hours. And what I noticed was that I hadn't lost my ability to improvise, but it wasn't coming out sounding like fake Dick Hyman or fake Bill Evans or fake Oscar Peterson the way it used to. It was sounding a little bit different. I don't know if it was original or not, but it didn't feel generic anymore. And I thought, that's really pretty good. 
you know, whether the other musicians liked it or not, who I was sitting in with probably didn't like it, but that, that doesn't matter. But then I thought, I want to do a big solo piano project coming back. What could I do? And then I remembered I had this recording by the German jazz pianist Alexander von Schlippenbach. Do you know him? I do not. Very interesting musician. He did a project called Monk's Casino, where he and his ensemble recorded, I think in concert, every composition Monk ever wrote. And they did their own versions of these. And I thought, oh, you know, why don't I do the complete Monk solo piano? So I had a relationship with the Cornelius Street Cafe in New York City, which sadly closed last year, but my baby grand piano lived there. So I made a proposal. I said, listen, next year is the 30th anniversary of Monk's death. How about on that day I play the complete Monk? And they said, sure. I thought, okay, great. This is something that I can work toward. toward. So I started taking out my fake book of Monk songs, and I just started fooling around with them and just let my imagination go and coming up with different ways to approach these songs. And then as that evolved, I started putting playlists together to see how one song would flow from you know one to another. Now, I didn't improvise on all of these because if I was going to, then the evening would have lasted you know, hours and hours. Yeah. So sometimes I would just play a song once through. Um, like, for instance, I would take five of the blues themes and I just threw them all together, played them really fast, because then that would buy me time to improvise on something like Round Midnight, for example. Oh, sounds like a wonderful evening. Yeah, but then there were only maybe two or three songs where I played Monk's voicings exactly the way he had them because I thought they were really wonderful and there was nothing really I could do with it. And that way at least his voice could emerge now and again in the evening. But, but with the other songs, I really let myself go sometimes i would just be instinctive and creative but then sometimes i would create a deliberate pastiche for instance on the song nutty uh yes I can't, uh, on my cd i deliberately treat it like what if nutty was being played in the style of Bert Bacharach's close to you is in the Carpenters recording. Nice. So I don't I don't know if you can hear, but like for instance, um, <laughs> what a treat! <laughs> I don't know. Did did that did that come come? Yes, it was wonderful. You could hear that. You could hear that. Yes. So that's so that's one example of uh, of a deliberate of a deliberate pastiche. And then let's say brilliant corners. I really all I do is really play the melody, but I, but I accompany it with ringing bass tremolos, which sound like. I can't remember the song now. I'm not, but, but 
I love it. It kind of has, but it kind of has the flavor of a Shostakovich. There, there are other pieces where, um, like crisscross, I treat in a very, very abstract kind of way, where you hear one of my favorites. One of my favorites. Yeah, but if you play my track crisscross on the CD, it's very abstract and very. Oh, I'm, the word isn't coming to me. I'm having a senior moment here. Very asymmetrical rhythms. And uh, so you, it's something you might relate to a Pierre Boulez sonata, but the tune definitely comes across. Well, but then on a song like Reflections, I play it very much in the style of an Ellis Larkin's ballad. He was a wonderful pianist who played for a lot of singers. Uh, the way I play Baya, for instance, that's like an out-and-out Errol Garner imitation, which you would never expect. So, so, so there's stylistic pastiches that are not very long, but then there's some treatments that I think are much, much more original. But the combination of all of this, I think, in a way, what I did not expect is that the Monk Project kind of added up to my autobiography. Yes. Yeah, no filtered through Monk. So basically I'm resting on Monk's coattails and and taking advantage of his celebrity to get attention. I mean, it's a kind of a flip thing to say, but, you know. Well, I mean, it's out there. It's a body of work it's, it, that uh, you're, you're holding onto and interpreting, and I think that's fair. Uh, it seems like you healed a bit through it as well, as trying to, you know, understand. Maybe, you know. Uh, it that's possible too. I think there was a, I think also in a way where it's kind of bringing together the compositional side of me and the improvising side of me. So it's not quite jazz and it's not quite classical. So I don't, I don't, I don't know where the CD is going to fall. Certainly since you don't have record stores anymore or CD stores, you don't have, the bins, you know. So, do I put this in classical or new music or right, jazz right. or may I don't know? Put it in easy listening, you know. <laughs> no. Well, how would people get their hands on it? Well, you can get it through it's several ways through TNC Music, which is the label that it, it. This is on. This is a Las Vegas-based label that is owned and operated by the composer Virko Bali. And uh, it's a fabulous label. He's released a wide variety of music. He's released in particular a lot of music by Ukrainian composers because he is a Ukrainian-American composer himself. I'm I'm really, really quite proud of it. You can also find the disc uh, Fearless Monk on Bandcamp. Excellent. Now you're now you're talking to the younger crowd right there. They yeah. can, they can grab onto it at Bandcamp. And oh, absolutely. Um Jed, we're just about without any more time. We started our conversation about time and mm-hmm. here we are. You no, know, we don't have too much time, but you know, you're talking about reaching younger audiences and actually I don't think it's a problem at all. I think the older audiences are completely disenfranchised and neglected. And these are precisely the audiences who we have to be getting because these are people who have the time, who have the disposable income, who have the insight, who have the maturity 
and the wisdom and the experience to bring to hearing what we have to offer. I think still, I think we have to have bring music education back into schools and music appreciation and music literacy. Yes, that is absolutely crucial so that kids can be exposed to jazz and classical music and exposed to things that are more challenging. They don't have to like it, but at least be exposed to it to know that it's there. And then they come to it in their own time. Exactly. Get older. And I notice this more and more and more because everybody's concerned with how are we going to get young kids to concerts? You're not because they're so damn expensive. Get (laughs) older audiences in a, you know, this is, you know, we're, you know, I'm, maybe I'm saying this as a emerging senior citizen, but, you know. Well, no, I had a conversation with uh, New Orleans jazz musician Delfio Marsalis, and he said yep. the same thing about the cost and how it's removed from, you know, communities of lesser means, so to speak, financial means, uh, where it really comes from originally, and it's a problem. And, his right. and, 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 and I think I think it's what I find is you know, the, I, I find that the, the their older audiences who are coming out to benefits from my radio station. And, and these are the people who are supporting it. And uh, I, I be, because I think it's also a major that there's a major group of the population and and you really can't ignore not just their medical needs, but their spiritual and intellectual yeah. needs. Well said. Well said. I think we'll leave it there. Mr. Jed <laughs> Disler, New York City-based pianist and composer and radio show host. So, so, so much of a pleasure to talk with you, sir. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Okay. Ciao, ciao. Ciao.
Two Jazz Poems Scrambled Eggs and Whiskey by Hayden Carruth Scrambled Eggs and Whiskey in the False Dawn Light Chicago, a sweet town, bleak, God knows, but sweet. Sometimes, and weren't we fine tonight? When Hank set up that limping treble roll behind me, my horn just growled, and I thought my heart would burst. And Brad M. pressing with a soft stick, and Joanne singing low. Here we are now in the white tower, leaning on one another, too tired to go home. But don't say a word. Don't tell a soul. They wouldn't understand. They couldn't. Never in a million years. How fine, how magnificent we were in that old club tonight. A Poem for Ella Fitzgerald by Sonia Sanchez When she came on the stage, this Ella, there were rumors of hurricanes, and over the rooftops of concert stages, the moon turned red in the sky. It was Ella. Ella. Queen Ella had come, and words spilled out, leaving a trail of witnesses smiling. Amen. Amen. A woman. A woman. She began, this three aged woman, nightingales in her throat, and squads of horns came out to greet her. Streams of violins and pianos splashed their welcome, and our stained glass silences, our braided spaces, unraveled, opened up, said, Who's that coming? Who's that knocking at the door? Whose voice lingers on that stage gone mad with Perdido, Perdido, Perdido? I lost my heart in Toledo. Whose voice is climbing up this morning chimney, smoking with life, carrying her basket of words? A tisket, a tasket, my little yellow basket. I wrote a letter to my mom, and on the way I dropped it. Was it red? No, 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 no. Was it green? No, 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 no. Was it blue? No, 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 no. Just a little yellow. Voice rescuing razor-thin lyrics from hopscotching dreams. We first watched her navigating Apollo stage amid high-stepping yellow legs. We watched her watching us, shiny and pure woman, sugar and spice woman, her voice a nun's whisper, her voice pouring out guitar thick in the blues, her voice a faraway horn, questioning the wind, and she became Ella, first lady of tongues, Ella cruising our veins, voice walking on water, crossed in prayer. She became holy, a thousand sermons concealed in her bones as she raised them in a symphonic shudder, carrying our sighs into her bloodstream. This voice, chasing the morning waves, this Elatonian voice, soft like four layers of lace. When I die, Ella, tell the whole joint, please, please don't talk about me when I'm gone. I remember waiting one night for her appearance, audience impatient at the lateness of musicians. I remember it was April, 
and the flowers ran yellow and the sun downpoured yellow butterflies, and the day was yellow and silent. All the spring held us in a single drop of blood. When she appeared on stage, she became nut arching over us, feet and hands placed on the stage, music flowing from her breasts. She swallowed the sun, sang confessions from the evening stars, made earth divulge her secrets, gave birth to skies in her song, remade the insistent air, and we became anointed, found inside her bop. Bop, bop, dua, bop, bop, dua, bop, bop, dua. Lady, 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 be good, be good to me, to you, to us all. Cause we just some lonesome babes in the woods. Hey lady, sweet Ella lady, 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 be good. Ella, Ella lady, be good, good, good. Shining bright above you Night breezes seem to whisper I love you Birds singing in the sycamore tree Dream a little dream of me Say nighty night and kiss me just hold me tight and tell me you'll miss me while I'm alone and blue as can be. Dream a little dream of me. Stars fading, but I linger on dear. Oh, how you linger Still craving your kiss How you crave my kiss Now I'm longing To linger till dawn dear Just sing this Give me a little kiss Sweet dreams Till sunbeams find you Sweet dreams that leave all worries behind you but in your dreams whatever they be dream a little dream of me but I linger on dear still craving your kiss yeah, I'm longing to linger till dawn, dear. Just saying this. Sweet dreams, dreaming. Till something's fine, you keep dreaming. Gotta keep dreaming. Dreams, whatever they be, you've got to make 
Friends, Upper West Side, Lower East Side, Center City into the South Side, and the North Branch to Bushwick is broken again, as time spent in Hoboken is done to make amends. Why does he not eat orange carrots or green celery in his blue Mercedes-Benz? Episode 352 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, New York City-based P. 
pianist and composer Jed Disler, our associate producer Dr. Michael Pavis, poets Hayden Carruth and Sonia Sanchez, and these musical artists Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, The Nude Party, The English Beat, Jed Disler, Ella Fitzgerald and Louis Armstrong, Thelonious Monk, Branford Marsalis, and Terence Blanchard, too. It's nice to be with you. Thanks so much for listening. Until next week, let's give it a go and try to enjoy this one.